This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's continue the year in review. 2023 was a very interesting year in the world of economics. The notion of a recession, I'm putting the air quotes up with my fingers there, loomed over any broader conversation about the economy. So did the cost of living. Interest rates went up. Economic growth and the employment rate stagnated. Inflation slowed down. But the actual cost of living got higher. Let's pull at a few different threads, starting with the cost of living. It is fair to say that overall inflation eased in 2023, but cost of living still put a major strain on people's finances. Grocery prices in Canada still outpace general inflation. The cost of housing was almost double digits higher year over year, even though home prices themselves were stable. The only core number that offered much relief was the cost of fuel. Gasoline prices ended up the year a smidge lower than where they started. And I'm actually going to take the first swing at this topic because I've been banging on about the man-made recession of 2023 for basically 12 months now, where a lot of folks at central banks think that monetary policy is the big driver on inflation and cost of living right now, when in reality, it's fuel prices and the cost of energy. That's what started the inflationary spike, and that's what's putting downward pressure on inflation right now, while monetary policy continues to drive inflation up. So, Joita, this is where I'm trying to reconcile the big picture with microeconomic data. Right now, monetary policy is failing people, not helping people. Yeah, I think that's the sentiment that is why getting a, a lot of traction um, and that, that monetary policy is not really doing what it was intended to do and is driving people further into despair. Cost of living, I would have to say, has been the issue mm-hmm. for 2023. Yeah, beyond absolutely. politics, beyond uh, even international conflicts. For the average Canadian, I would say this is the, the one issue that has hurt the pocketbook and has taken uh, and has and has rightly, I suspect, proved to be a tremendous preoccupation for average Canadian voters and the politicians who represent them. But I don't know if we're really digging ourselves out of this mess anytime soon. House prices remain staggeringly high. Uh, According to one recent stat, only 25% of Canadian families can afford to buy a single-family home. So what becomes of the rest of us? That's a question for, I suspect, another segment or another topic. Uh, It's it's, it's coming up next. (laughs) But I think the price on groceries continues to be the one where I feel the deepest discontent. Uh, the, the the fact that prices of groceries continue to outstrip inflationary growth in the way that they do means that people who are the most marginalized can't afford to put things on the table. And even for those of us who may be working, may have good jobs, uh, we are all feeling the pinch. And I think we have to really ask ourselves intelligent questions about why it is that grocery prices continue to remain as high as they do. I know last year, greedflation was a big story that was floated. Is it all greedflation? I'm starting to think there's more to it than, the, than that. Uh, so I think moving forward, we really do need to have intelligent conversations about grocery prices, whether that includes things like some form of 
price fixing or some form of subsidies to, you know, because there were stories about people not being able to afford salt and oil. So I think groceries is, uh, the price of groceries is one that isn't going to go away from the, the media landscape anytime soon. And it's the one that politicians needed to act on yesterday. Michelle, I'm just going to offer one little more piece of context here before I throw to you in regards to my man-made recession points. When I'm talking about monetary policy, I'm specifically referring to high interest rates. Interest and rates, th yeah, And that's, that's where you look yeah. at the cost of housing being double digits higher year over year. That is driven entirely by monetary policy because home prices have been stagnant. And that needs to be deeply triple, quadruple, quintuple examined at this point at any level of economic analysis. And Although it's gaining some traction, I don't think it's getting enough traction on how much of any economic slowdown that's occurred this year is entirely man-made, and any kind of inflation slowdown is strictly because of energy prices. Okay, Michelle, how are you reconciling the big economic picture with some of the more micro data points of the economy? How, how do you really feel, though, Dave, is what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, this, the Bank of Canada is is has been under a lot of pressure lately to definitely not to raise the rates a lot of pressure to lower them or at least stay put and that is what the bank of canada has opted to do next year i think the the, the fairly loud chorus of lower the inflation rate is going to become almost deafening um that is where i think a lot of people's anger is is focused right now and i agree with you both this is really the issue we talked about a number of potential ballot box issues last segment this really is the one where people care the most this is why Pierre Polyev has had so much success with his messaging this year. It all comes back down to this issue here. Like Joita, I also am going to be watching with quite a bit of interest about the grocery efforts to get those prices under control. <clears throat> um, excuse me, there's lots of drama that continues there. Um, CEO is being taken to task for comments that they've made about this sort of issue. Uh, compliance with the grocery code of conduct, efforts to get that implemented. I don't think anyone really believes any of it will have any difference until they start to see those prices come down. And in order for that to happen, like Joita, I think is some, uh, some insight into how a pretty complex system works would go a long way to uh, helping to unpack exactly where the issue lies. Okay, let's, uh, Joita mentioned housing. I think we've all sort of talked about housing here. So let's try to be quick on our points on this one. I know it's a topic that we've covered a ton, but there has been consensus this year in regard to housing. Pretty much everybody agrees there's a housing crisis in Canada. Why there's a crisis and how to fix it, that's where consensus continues to lack. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimates that Canada will need to build over 3 million housing units over the next seven years to restore affordability to the market. The Fed's probably provinces and cities, they're all throwing money at the issue, but the housing starts deficit, i.e. new builds, that deficit continues to grow. Michelle, your big thought on the housing crisis. This was interesting to watch this become the year that everyone acknowledged it as a crisis. Uh, that was not, not a chorus that was universally adopted, I would say, until this year. Everyone's there now, but zero strategy, zero consensus on how best to deal with it, zero agreement on what the underlying causes may be. Um, I, I, this is one where there's there's a, a great need for urgent action, but there's so many uncoordinated pieces of the puzzle that I have some concerns about how this is all going to unfold. Joita, your big thought on the housing crisis. Well, I think it's a complex issue, and at least it's 
an improvement of sorts to see that everybody now agrees that it has reached a tipping point. I know there are some ideas being floated about uh, returning to the a post-war model of building housing, uh, and we have seen some starts to try and meet that 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 deficit in new builds. But whether or not it'll be enough remains to be seen. Certainly, there are other models of housing that can be considered more funding towards co-ops and things of like that might go a long way towards alleviating the housing crisis. Your big thought, Joita. Your big thought. Fast, please. Yeah, well, that's my big thought. I mean, it's tricky to, to to manage housing policy because on the one hand, you want to build new affordable housing, but at the same time, for a lot of Canadians, the housing that they already own is their, is their vehicle for saving in retirement. So you also don't want to devalue existing housing. How you make everybody happy is a question that is beyond my pay grade. Okay. <laughs> There's been a lot of uh, spaghetti thrown at the wall this year. Uh, there's been an attempted crackdown by a couple of provinces when it comes to short-term rentals like Airbnb. There's also been some retrofitting ideas. There's been the idea of expanding density like laneway and backyard homes. But I've promised you this for months. Dave Brown Consulting has done some math on solving the housing crisis. As I mentioned, there have been a number of announcements on affordable housing construction in a few provinces this year. It worked out to about $350,000 per unit, on average, on average. I'm going to round up to $400,000, just for the sake of simplifying the math. Using the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimate of 3.5 million homes needed, the math is big, but it's actually quite a simple equation. 3.5 million times 400,000. $1.4 trillion. If you put solving the houses, housing crisis solely at the feet of governments, that's the cost. $1.4 trillion. Putting it in real terms for you. Wow. That's that's what it is, according to Dave wow. Brown Consulting. <laughs> now, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling these numbers. Was, but, but I'm pulling these numbers. That's actually a low ball, but anyways, that's... Because you can't Are just you actually, build housing. You you also have to think about the infrastructure that goes along with it. So it's probably way more than that. But it's, yeah. Okay, but, be but true. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm basing this on numbers that were released by provinces for their various projects. So like they're, they're, there's some estimate going on here, but 1.4 yeah. trill, 1.4 trill minimum. So you're arguing for PPPs then? What's uh, public-private partnerships? Private partnership. mm, yeah. I'm arguing for probably crown corporations. I think, yeah, I think at this point, yeah, at, at this point, if, yeah. if, I, if I'm a level of government, I'm at the point where I'm, it, the private sector is part of the reason why the housing crisis is happening. So I'm not leaving yeah. it in the private sector's ha uh, uh, hands to fix yeah, it, right? Like, I wanted <laughs> to be sure about you. <laughs> but, that, but, but that's where Juita's talking about yeah. this post-war model, like the post-war model, yes, the 1940s exactly. and 50s model of saying, we're going to build a lot of very similar houses that are going to involve density of either townhouses or very tight packed single family homes like like there's there's a way to do this and there is a model it can even be things like uh, mobile homes for example right like you can build 2,000 square foot mobile homes for about a hundred thousand dollars so yes land and infrastructure all those other costs but like like there's a number you can put on this and and yes like it, it's going to cost a ton but what's the end like positive social result if you spend the money right it's like that's what it boils down to hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, housing is a social good, but that's uh, another. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. And I think we've unpacked that one quite a bit over the course of the year. So let's move on to probably the other biggest economic story of 2023, and that's labor unrest. 2023 was a yeah. major year on the labor front. There were notable public sector and private sector strikes. Are you ready? I'm about to list off some prominent ones. Federal Public Service, Hollywood, 
BC Ports, liquor store workers in Manitoba, grocery workers in Ontario, Quebec's public sector, the auto workers on both sides of the border, St. Lawrence Seaway strike. Those are eight big ones, but there have been a whole bunch, bunch more. Joita, what did 2023 suggest to you about organized labor? That it has been a good year for organized labor, lots of uh, strikes happening, a lot of labor unrest taking place, which isn't all that surprising because we've already laid out the reasoning, the cost of living crisis, the crunch on housing. People uh, turn to unions and turn to things like strikes and other forms of organized protest when they, their incomes don't keep up with the cost of living. It's as simple as that. So there have been some interesting evolutions. Uh, it's obviously uh, worth, there was a story earlier this year about a union for um, contract workers, so-called independent contractors. And so it does also create an opportunity for unions to organize in different ways as we recognize that the nature of work itself is shifting. But I don't see the drive towards unionization strikes and labor struggles disappearing anytime soon because we are far away from restoring an equilibrium between people's wages and the cost of living, as we've said in, a, in previous conversations today. Mm -hmm. Michelle, I'm going to let you go first on this because I actually wonder if you and I are sharing a brain. What did 2023 suggest to you about organized labor? Um, well, I, it's undeniable. This was a huge year for them. They, they're the ones with momentum here. And I'm very interested by the, two things. The strategy of preemptive strike mandates. This is something that a lot of unions have been taking into these. And, and I'll note that almost every one of the strikes that you mentioned, Dave, did result in big gains for the unions, except for the Quebec situation, which is still ongoing. So we don't know how that one's going to play out. So preemptive strike mandates was a tool that got used quite effectively in a number of places as a bargaining strategy. And also the, the, the just the the size and the degree of, of wage gains that were implemented, salary gains, there was interest, a lot of language around outsourcing work and, and bringing in protections for contract workers or trying to convert them for more stable employment. So some, some long, long standing issues actually seem to have gotten some meaningful attention in collective bargaining. And that's what I find interesting. And I'll be interested to see, A, how much that momentum can continue before there inevitably goes some anti-union pushback. Okay, we didn't quite share a brain on this. I want to point to two strikes in particular, the BC port and the grocery workers in Ontario. In both cases, the union ended up rejecting initial deals fought mm. for by their yeah. leadership. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, I think we've talked about it on the show collectively, that it's not necessarily a bad thing that union rank-and-file members told their leadership, hey, you didn't get the deal that we want. But it did suggest something to me about unanimity and the difficulty of unanimity in society collectively. And it, it spoke to the power of organized labor, and it spoke to the power of workers, rank-and-file workers, as opposed to broader leadership in the unions. And that was one of my big takeaways here, because even in the auto workers' strikes, there were that certainly all of them got ratified, but there was some uh, pretty strong back and forth on whether or not they would be ratified in their initial conception. So that was something that struck me about organized labor in 2023. One more from the economy, something that loomed over the entire economic conversation this year was instability in financial institutions. I know it feels like a long time ago, but Silicon Valley Bank went bust early in the year. Several small banks in the United States followed suit. Regulators and the government rushed in to assure the stability of the American financial system. A few weeks later, Credit Suisse, one of the biggest banks in Europe, collapsed. Regulators swept in again to arrange a sale of Credit Suisse, primarily to UBS. Canadian banks continued to make 
billions of dollars in profits. They did lay off chunks of their staff, though, and they have publicly stated concern over the number of bad loans they're holding. For example, the Bank of Montreal is getting out of the car loan business. Michelle, your observation about stability in the financial sector, uh, I know it was real doom and gloom about nine months ago, but there's certainly been stability over the course of the latter part of the year. There has, yeah. And and certainly within Canada, which is where I feel the most qualified to comment, uh, Canada's financial sector has been among the most stable for a very long time. Um, the, the big five banks are, are doing quite well. Thank you very much. Uh, they're also among the engines I would think that would be considered too big to fail here in Canada. So I feel like a lot of us here are a little more shielded from some of that more, more global financial turmoil. And certainly our banking sector is not one that I have uh, lost a lot of sleep over worrying about this past, <laughs> this mm -hmm. past calendar year. I was losing a lot of sleep in February and March because to me, Joita, it felt like some symptoms of 2008 looming back into the economy. But I wonder how much of that ended up just being a shock of sharply increased interest rates in a short period of time. But regulators and the government were certainly ready for this one, uh, unlike 2008. Nobody got caught with their pants down. Yeah, I, I think in general, there were some of those symptoms uh, earlier this year, but the Canadian banking system has always been a little more regulated than their American and counterparts. So you're not going to see those shockwaves. I doubt we'll see any major bank in Canada collapse in the next 12 months, even if they are uh, in the unfortunate position of having to lay off some of their workforce. Um, it is worth noting that Canadian banks continue to make record profits. So I would, I'm not going to be losing a lot <laughs> okay. of sleep about, you know, the fact that our banks aren't doing as well as they have always done. Um, it would be very interesting to see if uh, there have been some interesting stories about banks closing branches and especially yes. in far flung parts yes. of the country. And I think that that story was very interesting to me. And it'd be very interesting to see how banks uh, mitigate that situation where people weren't actually able to access tellers and services in a local branch. I floated the idea of banks actually sharing uh, responsibilities for some of these uh, out-of-the-way places in Canada. Whether anyone in the top five banks in Canada listens to me is a whole other question, but that is a big issue for Canadians just in, in terms of doing their day-to-day -day banking. Yeah, I think that's a perfect... And it's worth mentioning Canada Post is perennial, as a perennial option that always comes up in these conversations. Yeah, post, postal banking. And I think that's kind yeah. of a beautiful spot to kind of wrap this up because when you're talking about the economy, there's the macro numbers versus the micro numbers. And I think at the end of the year, you look at the macro data and say, oh, it was a fine year economically, but then you start talking to people and it was brutal. So I think that's one of the interesting complications in trying to broadly talk about the economy that some signs of health can be quite easily evident and some signs of unhealth can be uh, quite evident as well. Okay, let's tuck the economy away into a safe deposit box. Coming up after the break, the other three biggest news stories of the year, wildfires in Canada, international conflict, and artificial intelligence. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.